If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. Green Dreamer is supported by our listener patrons. To support the show starting at just $1 per month and access extended content, you can head to greendreamer.com support to learn more. I think that the fate of the entire Amazon rainforest is in the hands of the indigenous youth, the next generation of leaders, and how they navigate this complex reality that they're living. That was Mitch Anderson, the founder and executive director of Amazon Frontlines, which is an international group of human rights lawyers, environmental activists, forestry specialists, and others who work to support the struggles of indigenous peoples and defend their rights to land, life, and cultural survival in the Amazon rainforest. Stay tuned as we're about to explore the following questions in this episode, which is actually part one of our two-part conversation. How does one who's grown up with a privileged background begin dismantling that worldview to be able to truly understand and meaningfully support the struggles of marginalized people? And how do we go about helping our indigenous people of the Amazon rainforest to achieve their goals of conservation without perpetuating things like white saviorism or further marginalizing them with our senses of morality and idealism? Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to ecological balance, intersectional sustainability, and true abundance and wellness for all. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word. You know, I grew up in Marin, one of the most affluent places in the world. And for instance, my street name was Seminole. And the neighboring street was Mohawk. And when I was young, I didn't really even think much of it, you know, that these powerful indigenous tribes had become street names in the white suburbs where I was growing up. You know, when we learned about the gold rush in school, for instance, I identified more with the settlers, the white Europeans and their covered wagons and all their hardship. And, you know, I don't even really remember squinting my eyes figuratively to try to see what this land might have looked like before the roads and the cities and the, the baseball parks and what the life of the Ohlone people would have looked like, the hunting trails in the mountains, the canoes on the bay, the wildlife, all the abundance. And I guess I guess as humans, we're just born into our, into our time. It's easy to take all that for granted and as a given. You know, but when I left Marin on this huge journey to 
to go to school in the East Bay, just right across the right across the bridge. I went to Berkeley. <laughs> you know, my entire sort of perspective on life opened up before me, and I think that was sort of the beginning of a kind of unsheltering. I began having friends from all over the world with different backgrounds and different different colors, different religions, different histories, politics, immigrants, refugees, activists, and I guess you could say I began knowing people that had more at stake and were forced to risk more in life to be where they are and who they are than me. And I, I respected them. I felt that it made them more intelligent and more knowing and resilient, creative, sharper, alive. You know, it also raised questions for me, probably for the first time, to as a white, the young white man about my own upbringing and privilege and just the limits inherent in that shelter. You know, so that was sort of the beginning. And then I studied philosophy and political economy there and graduated right when the U.S. was invading Iraq. And I set off on a quest um, with the wish to be a writer and an appetite really for seeing the world through the eyes of others. And at the time, my girlfriend was part Mexican. And like many second, third generation immigrants in the U.S., she'd been deprived of that, of that part of her history. And so together we decided to travel to Mexico and we went all the way to the south at the border with Guatemala. And without really even knowing it at first, I entered right into the middle of a 500-year-old war. I began working with the human rights organization, documenting Mexican military occupation of the highlands and the lowlands of Chiapas, working in Mayan territory, directly with the Zapatistas, spending time in over 100 villages. And I began to live and work with the Sotzil and the Celtal and the Tojolaval and the Mam and the Zoque and the Lacandon. And I was told stories of you know, military massacres, the burning of homes, the loss of land, how brothers had been turned against brothers. For the first time in my life, I saw the extent of life's cruelty. You know, it was a killing cruelty. And, you know, if there was any lingering sense of adventure and romance about being in the mountains of Mexico on an investigation, well, that sort of privileged thinking was extinguished pretty quick. Mm. And I felt betrayed by my own privilege, really. I remember driving on all the sort of jungle roads and feeling how preposterous my life had been up to that point. Really kind of like how ludicrous are the lives we lead in these consumer societies where I didn't even know where my food came from or who makes our clothes. You know, we spend our lives in offices and commutes, making money and gathering debt on the pursuit of comfort. And we don't recognize that it's for this sort of mediocre pursuit that so much of our planet is destroyed and resource wars are ravaging these ancient cultures. And I was, I felt like suddenly I was in the middle of it. And the very people whose hardships in life had taught me about my own privilege, they were also teaching me how to overcome it, you know, by laughing at myself. And they'd look at me, you know, like this, you know, white kid from the city, didn't know how to use a machete, didn't know how to ride a horse or grow his own food. And it was just hilarious to the Mayan folks how little I knew about survival, how little I knew about the forest or the land. And soon it became hilarious to me. Yeah, I mean, I think probably the biggest learning and, you know, what really, you know, maybe even the biggest shock, as it were, was was realizing that this was the first time working with indigenous folks in southern Mexico that I'd ever been around people who remembered, who had a different scale of memory than mine. Mm -hmm. You know, I think we all go back to the very beginning somehow, you know, in our blood and our bones and our brains and our souls. And how far back can we really remember and how close do we carry the memories of our ancestors and their lives and their trials and their migrations, their beliefs, their ways, and our blood. In America, I think, is a culture of forgetting. I think it's one of the most powerful and most dangerous forces in our country is that, the forgetting of our past, where we come from, and this constant looking forward, sort of a neurotic, optimistic future that we invent 
ends up owning us, you know, and the Mayan families that I came to know in Chiapas depended on their memory and the knowledge of the land and the plants, the animals passed down from their ancestors in order to survive. And they weren't searching to conquer faraway land or another people. They were struggling literally for the right to be who they are in their forests and mountains where their ancestors lived. So early on, as you began working with the indigenous people in the Ecuadorian Amazon, you talk about how you discovered so much about the stamina of memory in indigenous cultures. Can you expand upon this and share some of the most profound things you've learned? The question of wisdom is a tricky one. I think for many listeners, or maybe more broadly for most non-indigenous folks, when you talk about wisdom in indigenous peoples, the image that gets conjured up is, you know, like 19th century portraits on the plains with like the stoic men with their headdresses <laughs> looking into and beyond the camera. And, you know, and the viewer of these photographs can really quickly invent their own idea of wisdom, you know, and their own idea of tragedy and courage and all these big archetypal ideas. And it all can quickly turn into romanticism. You know, and there are also these quotes from Native American elders and from the heroic figures of the plains that have been passed down through the centuries, you know, talking about the white man's love of possessions and speaking in striking ways about the wind and water and animals and the earth. You know, I guess I'm bringing all that up before talking about indigenous wisdom because I don't want to in, inadvertently fall into these kind of romantic traps where I end up speaking about indigenous wisdom in the same way that one might speak about Socrates or Plato or Buddha, you know, because in the end, the quotes standing next to each other don't tell you about the way of life that produced that perspective. There's one old timer named Delphine Payaguaje of the Sequoia people with whom, you know, I've drank ayahuasca many a night and gone on many hunting and fishing trips. And Delphine has his ancestral territory mapped out in his mind. He knows all the ancient hunting trails. He recognizes the gardens and the orchards of his ancestors, the sites of old wars and the lagoon where an old shaman defeated a huge boa. You know, and to walk with him through the forest is like to walk through a living pharmacy, a food market, a hardware store, a place of myths, history, memories, his home. You know, and just like a couple of years ago, there were some ethnobotanists that spent a couple of weeks out with him doing a comparative study on indigenous plant knowledge. And Delphine literally was able to identify in his own language, Pinecoca, names and uses for over a thousand plants, flowers, roots, resins, and vines. Wow. He doesn't speak much Spanish, you know, but, and I can only, I can only cause laughter in Pinecoca, but when I've been out with him in the forest on hunting trips, he's always signaling to the plants and the vines with his machete. This cures headaches. This is good for the liver. This cleans the stomach. This is a dart poison. This is good for addiction. This lowers fevers. This sharpens your eyesight. This is for a snake bite. Be careful. This will give you a rash. You know, and I've told people back in the U.S. about Delphine's knowledge of the forest. And often the response is, you know, what a miracle. You know, how could someone know so many plants? You know, and even many of Delphine's own grandkids couldn't identify a fraction of the medicinal plants that he knows. Instead of hunting and fishing in the backwoods and streams with grandpa and grandma, many in the younger generation are, you know, forced to look towards the city for survival and, you know, take up unskilled work for the companies or the mining, mining industry or the African palm plantations. You know, and thousands of years of knowledge and tradition are being threatened in a matter of generations. And each year, the way of life of the dominant society of capitalism, consumerism keeps taking root deeper and deeper in the forest. I think it's also taking root deeper and deeper in the minds of the youth. And, you know, getting into the question of wisdom, you know, I think Delphine's relationship to the forest, it isn't about this mystical wisdom that you might think. It's about curiosity, it's about biting into leaves and tasting resins, experimenting. It's about spending a huge amount of time in the woods and observing 
And it's about depending on the forest, on its medicines, its fruits, its animals for survival. And in the end, it's about a love for the forest. It's not a an infantile kind of sentimental new age return to nature type love, but it's tough, humbling, quiet reverence for what the forest is and how it works and what it offers to someone who respects it enough to live and die within it. You know, I think this love and this knowledge, this wisdom is passed down through the generations, but it's not indestructible. It mm. can change, it can be taken away, it can be destroyed, it can, it can disappear. Are you also seeing generational differences in terms of the elders' vision for the Amazon and the youth's vision based on the fact that the youth is also being influenced by Western culture and, I guess, urban urban living as well? Yeah, I think that the fate of the entire Amazon rainforest is in the hands of the indigenous youth, the next generation of leaders, and how they navigate this complex reality that they're living. Um, and exactly that, you know, the youth do not have the same relationship to the land and to the forest that, you know, Delphine has, that the old timers have. They've got one foot in the forest and one foot in the city. You know, one foot on the medicinal plants and another foot in the, you know, the chemical pharmacy in town. What I've, what I've heard from the youth, you know, is that, look, the, the loggers, the oil companies, the miners, you know, they're the ones that are sort of most active sort of proposing, you know, those are the only opportunities that we're given, you know, is like how to plant African palm, how to raise cattle, how to become an oil worker. You know, when the youth see that they, they need money to, to survive and those are the only job opportunities, you know, the fate of the Amazon is it's a dark situation. You know, what needs to happen is, you know, an investment, a massive investment in indigenous youth across the Amazon, building out platforms and opportunities for them to propose bold, radical alternative vision for their forests and for their way of life in, in the 21st century. And I think I mentioned it before, but that could include everything from solar energy to regenerative economies to, you know, recovering, you know, traditional plant medicines and healing systems interesting uses of technology to defend their forests, but also to sort of tell their stories and share their stories with the world, new approaches to education in the forest. So you get, you know, a really nice balance between all of the great, you know, advances in science and in Western knowledge with all of the, the amazing knowledge that indigenous peoples have of their forests, you know, and their language and, and their culture and their history. So in 2011, you moved to Ecuador's northern Amazon to work on a clean water project with the indigenous communities living downriver from contaminating oil operations. Can you shed some more light on your experience and what led you to this project? Yeah, of course. I mean, the first time I traveled to the Amazon was in 2007, and I met a Kofan man who's a dear friend of mine now, whose name is Emerhildo Criollo. And he brought us out to the river running past his village, and he told us the story of his childhood and of early fatherhood for him. And it went, you know, went something like this. He, when he was six years old, he, he saw uh, what he called a big metallic bird in the sky coming into his village. And it was a helicopter, essentially. It was the arrival of the American oil company into his people's ancestral land. And his father brought him out to the camp that the, the the American oil company had set up in his forest. And they went to see what they were doing. And they had never seen so many trees being cleared and so much destruction happening. And little did they know that this was the beginning of essentially the oil boom right at the epicenter of their ancestral territory. Mm -hmm. And Emerhildo 
um, who's now in his 60s, essentially from the time he was six years old, grew up, you know, with the threat of oil upriver from him and in his forest. You know, the Kofan people lost a lot of their ancestral territory and their hunting grounds, and they lost a source of life, you know, the, the rivers to oil contamination, to the deliberate dumping of toxic wastewaters and consistent oil spills into their rivers. And when he, you know, grew up and uh, started a family, he lost his first two children to the oil contamination. Wow. And when I, you know, when I met him, he pointed to the river and he said, I lost my children to the oil contamination, to the spills of uh, the American company, Chevron. And at that time, I had just begun working uh, with the organization Amazon Watch, which is a great nonprofit based out of San Francisco as a corporate campaigns director, and basically spent the next four years uh, working to hold Chevron Corporation to account for their massive environmental contamination of the Ecuadorian Amazon for deliberately dumping all sorts of you know toxic wastewater into the rivers and streams in order to save money. And, you know, after four years of running media campaigns and working with investors and shareholders in the company, you know, I began realizing that, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars were being spent on this on a massive litigation to try to hold Chevron to account. And Chevron was, you know, spending hundreds of millions of dollars defending themselves. And there had been no concrete uh, results for the communities that were, you know, still living downriver from the oil fields, still living without clean water. And so in 2011, uh, I went down to the Ecuadorian Amazon and I asked the indigenous nations the question, you know, like if we can start something now, what would it be? What would you want to work on together? And we had a great meeting and, you know, they talked about education and healthcare and, and clean water. And in the end, everybody down there, the Kofan, the Siona, the Sequoia, the Quichuas, the Warani, indigenous peoples all decided they wanted to work together on a clean water project. And so I, I left Amazon Watch and started a project with the indigenous nations of Ecuador's Amazon to, to ensure that every single family living downriver from the oil fields had access to clean water. You know, over the last seven years, we've installed upwards of 1,200 rainwater catchment systems for ensuring that every single Kofan, Siona, Sequoia, and Warani family living downriver from the oil fields have access to clean water. And, you know, what's been amazing about it is in the process, you know, the indigenous youth of the different nations were working together to build this solution to, you know, one of the toughest environmental problems, you know, river contamination, oil contamination of the water sources. And by working together and building these solutions for their families, you know, I saw I was with them on the canoes and carrying the materials into the villages. I saw this spark in their eye and this sort of fire in their gut that like, if we can do this together, you know, why are we waiting for the government and the companies to do other projects for us. Why don't we do them ourselves? You know, I was with them as they proposed to form an alliance between these four ancestral nations, between the Kofan, Siona, Sequoia, and Warani. And they decided to call it the Sabo Alliance, um, which is a very important tree down here in the Amazon. It's a tree of life. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they built out a vision to protect their lands from invasion and to thrive in their territories. And as part of that, I realized uh, it was important for the Sable Alliance to have a team of, of, of people from around the world that can provide some of the, the accompaniment that they were going to need because to defend their lands, they wanted to use cutting edge technology to document illegal invasions into their territories from miners or loggers or poachers. Um, so I wanted to, I wanted to make sure that they had 
that support from an, you know, an expert monitoring team that could help do trainings on technology and help accompany land patrols. You know, they wanted to use the law to defend their territories and exercise their rights so they can they could protect their land. So we built out a legal team to support them. The youth wanted to, you know, think about how to recover a lot of their of their stories and their plant knowledge, which is, you know, a fundamental part of their identity and and in their way of life. So we, you know, started a storytelling program where the youth are learning sort of new media tools and documentary filmmaking. Um, the women wanted to develop alternative economies um, so that their people don't depend on the destructive industries. And they wanted to recover sort of traditional healing systems as well. And so we started working uh, to help the women form women's associations and build power uh, in their nations, um, you know, that feminine power in their nations as leaders. Mm. And, you know, the communities wanted to continue building solutions, you know, so we've been working on ongoing uh, construction of clean water systems across across the oil affected Amazon, as well as building access to alternative energy, you know, solar home solar systems for families uh, living, you know, way off the grid and, you know, as a, as a, as a means of providing, you know, self-sufficiency in the forest. So people now have access to safe drinking water through the rainwater harvesting. Is the river still polluted then by the oil projects? And what is the impact of that on the ecosystem itself and perhaps the wildlife there, if we know? Ecuador's Amazon is one of the most biodiverse places on Earth. It's, you know, particular geography, you know, it's where the, the, you know, the tropical forest like runs up against the eastern part of the Andes. Um, and creates this amazing sort of ladder of biodiversity. It's also unfortunately sitting on top of these huge reserves of oil. And, you know, Ecuador back in the 60s began developing these resources, the oil resources with, you know, the help of the American company who ended up creating a massive environmental contamination and really a massive environmental crisis and really created a culture in, in the oil industry in Ecuador of just flagrant violations of common sense, you know, in in addition to just violations of international norms and international laws. Um, So there's been a, you know, huge history and legacy of contamination here, faulty infrastructure as well. Oil in the Amazon is just inherently unsustainable. And then, you know, add on top of that cost cutting measures and, you know, faulty design and infrastructure and seismic activity. So you get a lot of pipeline ruptures. But, you know, the indigenous communities in Ecuador's northern Amazon who have been living downriver from the oil fields are developing, you know, the power and the resources now with the Sable Alliance and the help of Amazon Frontlines to document these spills, to hold these companies to account. And we've been able to stop pipelines from being constructed. We've been able to revoke environmental licenses to drill over the last several years with the indigenous communities. Um, because they're they're fighting for their survival, they're fighting for their water, they're fighting for their hunting grounds, they're fighting for um, their ability to live well and thrive in their territory. But it's just been about not having access to the tools um, and the capacity and the networks and the resources to you know activate and exercise their rights. And that's what this struggle is about right now in Ecuador's northern Amazon. Mm. In the Western world, there's a very dominant idea of development that's viewed as progress, you know, the way forward. I'd love to get your insights on how the indigenous people you've come to know deeply view this Western idea of advancement and what are some of their ideologies of what it is that truly brings fulfillment and enrichment in life? 
Yeah, I've been living in the Amazon for the last eight years. And, you know, I've learned that many of the cultural practices, you know, the diets, the ceremony, the early rising, the sharing of dreams, it's all about how to live a happy and healthy life in the Amazon rainforest. And I think that especially for the elders, you know, many of the proposals and the impositions of the outside world, which you can call development, are seen through that lens. Will it help us live a happy and healthy life in our forest or not? And, you know, many of the activities such as gold mining with mercury or oil extraction or African palm plantations or, you know, cutting down the last of the hardwoods, all of that leads to the poisoning of the rivers, you know, the chopping down of the forest, the disappearance of wildlife. And, you know, by the elders, the indigenous elders, it's just seen as a locura. It's seen as insanity, you know, the product of a deranged way of living. It's not seen as as development. And I think this it all this all ties into sort of the question of wisdom and common sense. You know, the you know, I hear a lot of times, you know, the indigenous folks say, you know, we don't poison our own fishing holes. The outsiders do that because they don't fish in them. You know, so from the perspective of people living close to the land, none of, you know, most of the development proposals that involve extraction don't make sense. Mm-hmm. But I guess that's the trick of capitalism and conquest and empire is that at least in theory, you don't poison your own fishing holes. You do it elsewhere and you bring home the bounty, you know, and I think that's that's what this has been about here in the Amazon. It's just a staging ground for Western civilization's exploits and the indigenous peoples who've been living here the longest, who are the most experienced protectors and who have the most at stake, have really been swimming upriver, you know, over the last centuries in their efforts to protect their land and their way of life. And, you know, now it's time for, you know, for globalization to redeem itself and back the Amazon's oldest guardians in the protection of their way of life and their forests. Hmm. Well, if only we made all of our decisions based on what would help people be healthier and truly happier. Yeah, no, and I think just to add to it, I think that, you know, it's really important to understand too that the perspective of the younger generation of indigenous youth in the Amazon, you know, who who might not have the same connection to the forest that the elders do, who are essentially sort of caught between the forest and the city, caught between, you know, what they would call, you know, the old ways and the new ways or hunting and fishing and growing food with you know, versus, you know, getting a, getting a service job or a, a wage, wage labor and getting money to buy your food. You know, the next generation of indigenous youth are going to be, you know, the leaders of their people. And they're going to be the ones making really important decisions precisely about how to protect their land or how to do, quote, development in their territories. And, you know, a lot of the focus of the Sable Alliance and the indigenous peoples here and Amazon Frontlines is figuring out how to support the youth, invest in the youth, give the youth opportunities to thrive and to, you know, make decisions for the collective and for their people that can help their nations build out autonomy and build out sort of well-being in their in their territories in the 21st century. Mm. There's this idea of white saviorism that is commonly portrayed as a trope in the media and in story narratives that can become problematic when it leads a viewer who is white to identify with the hero status of the white protagonist going in to save or help a community of color that's facing oppression and further perpetuate the idea that marginalized people of color need to be saved by white people, that leadership can't be taken by a community member from within, or that white people coming in from developed places elsewhere know what is best for the community. How did you finally navigate leading environmental and indigenous activism in an immersive way that doesn't fall into white saviorism? 
Yeah, well, I don't believe in saviors or heroes, and I try to avoid complexes. And, and you know, I mentioned before a bit about what I've learned about white privilege and my personal journey to dismantle it. Um, I guess, you know, what I would like to say is, you know, I believe in listening to people, you know, and I don't come with, I don't have any of the answers, you know, and I've learned much more from the indigenous peoples and frontline communities than I think I've ever been able to impart to them. You know, I've spent uh, 15 years of my life working with and living with and learning from indigenous folks and trying to figure out the best way to support them in their struggles to protect their way of life and to protect their lands and their territories. And, you know, what I think I can offer a lot of times is, is sort of an understanding of sort of the mentality of Western civilization and capitalism and how media works and how sort of the people in the cities make their decisions. And, but I don't see in any way my role or it being helpful for my role to be sort of a protagonist or way out in front in all of this, because it's, you know, it's in the end, the struggles of the collective, you know, of, of the indigenous peoples who have territories, who have their own way of seeing, thinking, feeling, loving, believing, they have to lead their own, you know, their own struggles and their own fight. And they're going to need, you know, people, people there to support them. And that's how I see my role. Mm. So for people raised in the cities of Western civilization, wanting to help with the struggles of indigenous people, what do you think is important for us to keep in mind so that we not further marginalize them unintentionally through our activism, but actually be able to lend a hand in a meaningful way that helps them to achieve their goals? So in other words, how do we how do we practice actually centering our activism not around our own ideals or morality, but of those who are firsthand facing the oppression? Listening. I think listening, you know, uh, having the courage to listen. You know, I think a lot of people, activists included, you know, come to, you know, all of these different very intense situations and, you know, where there's industrial threats to frontline communities and they come with their own sort of preconceived ideas around what that resistance struggle should look like or how to do it most effectively. You know, and a lot of times, especially in indigenous cultures, there's just like a very different way of approaching solutions, approaching conversations, approaching decisions. You know, and a lot of times, you know, in sort of the the city world, the Western, you know, city life, even just the pace of sort of decision making and how this works doesn't line up, doesn't work, you know? And so like for, for, you know, frontline communities, for indigenous folks, and a lot of times decisions are made on conference calls in cities around the world that are directly affecting people's lives in these, in these territories, you know? So I would say that my, my fundamental, fundamental piece of advice would be to, to take that posture of, of, of listening and, and don't come into these situations and conversations believing that you, you have the answer. This concludes part one of a two-part conversation with Mitch Anderson of Amazon Frontlines. So stay tuned for the next episode, episode 162, as we further explore some key wins that we've had lately in safeguarding our Amazonian indigenous lands, what it took for that to happen, and why we need a shift in focus from protecting the Amazon rainforest to supporting the Amazon's oldest protectors, its indigenous people. Thank you so much for being here, and I will catch you in our concluding part two of this conversation in episode 162.